You're now listening to episode 102 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli joined here by Leite and Kenji of SemiRetiredMD.com, where they help liberate physicians from the clinical grind one real estate property at a time. In today's episode, we discuss how they achieve financial freedom through buy and hold real estate, the tax strategies they use to minimize taxes and help grow their portfolio, mindset, the struggles physicians face in the economy today, and how their platform helps others achieve financial freedom. Hey, everyone. We want to let you know about a new podcast we're releasing today called The Staying Power Podcast. This is a podcast that will explore the challenges business owners face as they grow. Together, Brandon Hall and I ask the tough questions to show you that running a business is not for the faint at heart, but if you have the staying power, you'll overcome your challenges and achieve lasting success. Subscribe to the Staying Power Podcast today on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts can be found. We hope you'll love this new podcast just as much as the Real Estate CPA Podcast. However, for right now, we'll jump right into today's episode. Leiti, Kenji, thanks you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Could you give our listeners a brief overview of each of your backgrounds? Sure. And thank you for having us both on here. Um, I am a family medicine doc. A hospitalist actually is, is specifically what I do. So I work with patients in the hospital. And then Kenji and I are both real estate investors. We're building our portfolio. I hope to have over actually 70 units pretty shortly. And then we also blog. Yeah, so I'm a physician as well, also a hospitalist. And uh, my background, I have a, I've started a number of companies uh, over the last 10 years. And um, most recently, uh, we're really focused on real estate now, building our real estate business, as well as our blog, which is also real estate related. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we've heard a lot about your story and uh, we're excited to dive in here today. Would you just be able to give us a brief overview of why you got into real estate specifically and what does your portfolio currently look like today? Sure. Of course. Um, we got into real estate before we even know, knew we were into it. What happened was several years ago, Kenji asked me, you know, how do you want to live your life? And what he really meant was, how do you want to live it without any kind of limitations? Because the natural reaction, I think, is to say, oh, I want to go you know, move into this house or I'm going to work here or whatever. But you never think truly big. And that's what he was encouraging me to do was pretend that I had unlimited resources. Like, How would I spend my time? And that story was very different than the life that we were leading. And once we had that vision of where we were going, then we were just looking around us all the time for figuring out the vehicle to get us there. And when real estate came along about 6 months later, it was like so clearly the right decision that we just jumped on it. Like immediately we read Rich Dad Poor Dad and we were just like blew our minds and we were like, we're real estate investors. We're going full force this way. Yeah. And then from there, we uh, acquired uh, over the last uh, five five years, we've acquired uh, over 60 units. Uh, and as Leite said earlier, you know we're, we're under contract for another 14 or so. And so 
Uh, and, that, and that's mostly what we've been doing. Uh, also, we've been taking advantage of real estate professional status. Uh, I've cut back on my clinical work uh, in order to be able to claim that status. And we've been uh, claiming that for the last five years. So let's talk about that a little bit because this is a really cool kind of layer of tax strategy while still earning ordinary income too. So you're claiming real estate professional status. And for those listening, you're probably rolling your eyes. If you've listened to a lot of our podcasts, we, we touch on this quite a lot, but real estate professional status, 750 hours, greater than half your time in a real property trader business. And then you have that material participation piece. How did you come to learn of real estate professional status? And what did the implementation look like and actually kind of scaling back your job, ramping up the real estate? You know, How did you know that you could hit it? Yeah. So I'm trying to remember where I heard about it. I think I heard about it uh, actually many years before we started investing from a friend of mine who was claiming some type of developer status. And so I think by the time that we started investing in rentals, I had this kind of vague notion that something like that existed. And then of course, we you know talked to accountants and uh, different experts, and then also read articles about it, and uh, and then we realized this thing, you know, this this was a possibility, and so, uh, so yeah, so we sat down with some CPAs and uh, and kind of planned what we were going to do, and so that first year, uh, we had acquired a total of eleven units. Uh, we already had two units, and then in terms of the hours, I had already cut back in my clinical work because I was working on a startup. And so it was a pretty natural transition to switch from that startup to just running a real estate business. And that's really kind of how I looked at it was that, you know, this was my profession. Uh, and when I file my taxes, I write real estate professional next to my name, not I don't put physician next to my name. And I treated it from a business from the beginning in terms of uh, recording hours, in terms of just uh, keeping track of income and expenses, thinking about how to improve the operations of our properties is kind of what I always think about every day. And so, yeah, I really just embraced the whole idea that real estate was my profession as opposed to what I call my side gig now, which is being a doctor. So, so real estate professional status, for those that don't know, the whole purpose of real estate professional is to take your passive rental activity and essentially reclassify it to non-passive. Rental real estate generally produces losses. There are some things that you can do to increase those losses. But when you have the non-passive loss, you can take it against your ordinary income. So have you guys been using anything to accelerate the losses like cost segregation studies or anything like that? Yeah. So initially, that even that first year, we realized that what we wanted to do was shelter our clinical income through the real estate. And so what we discovered that first year, we didn't really understand cost segregation at that point, was doing a lot of rehab and major repairs. And so that's how we started it out was just buying properties that needed a lot of work and creating expenses by doing a lot of work on them. And then a couple of years later, actually, it took us a couple of years to realize that we should be doing cost segregation studies. And at that point, we probably had like 10 buildings and we went and did cost segregation studies on all of them. But now we're all on top of the cost segregation studies. And we were like, right now we're about to do one for the new property we bought, which is a $3 million property. And we basically are rolling in 10 of all our small properties. So we started out you know, with duplexes and fourplexes and single family homes. And now we force so much appreciation, we're turning those over. And we're turning three of them into a $3 million building. And we're going to get that cost segregation. It's actually going to be probably close to a million dollars when we're done with everything. And that's going to shelter our income this year. And you know, maybe even next year, who knows? We're actually, we could actually carry it back mm -hmm, as well. That's true too. Yeah, with the new net operating loss provisions. Yeah, so let's talk about cost segregation for a second because a lot of people love talking about cost segregation, but they don't necessarily talk about what it does on the back end whenever you are trying to liquidate, right? 
So cost segregation is the practice of taking value out of my 27 and a half year depreciation bucket or 39 year if you're buying commercial real estate, taking it out of those buckets and then allocating the value to five, seven and 15 year property, which is personal property and land improvement. So cost study studies basically saying, Hey, if I buy a multifamily apartment complex or a commercial property or whatever, not all the components that make up that property are going to last 27 and a half years or 39 years. Uh, some are going to only last five, some will only last seven, some will only last 15. So a cost study says, let's take value out of that acquisition price, that 27 and a half year bucket. Let's allocate it to 5715. And then what happens is with the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we can now take 100% bonus depreciation on any component with a useful life of less than 20 years. So when we run a cost seg study, uh, if I've got a $3 million property and I'm able to allocate a million dollars of value to five, seven, and 15 year property, then I can also immediately expense $1 million of value under bonus depreciation. So cost seg firms love talking about that. But on the back end, what happens when you sell that property now for $5 million, you've already written off a million dollars of basis. So it actually increases your gain. So talk to us about like how you guys kind of came to the conclusion that, oh, we're going to do cost seg anyway. Because sometimes people look at it and they go, oh, well, I don't want to save all this money up front only to have to pay it back at some later point. So talk to us about how you kind of overcame that. Yes. Our vision has always been that we want to own large multifamily properties and really kind of a buy and hold strategy. The Tax Jobs and Cuts Act, as you mentioned, that stimulated and changed our behavior in the sense that we realized that if you 1031 those properties into bigger properties, then you can create this large bonus depreciation. And so I think ultimately we'll continue to do use the 1031s, uh, go bigger and bigger. And then in the end, maybe there might not be a property disposition at the end, right? We might just hold on to that last property and have that be a cash flowing property is kind of what we had envisioned. And then maybe pass that along to our children, then they would have that step up in basis. So I think that's kind of how we always envisioned it. Uh, I don't know that we ever imagine that we're going to liquidate everything at the end. Yeah, I would. I, I mean, first of all, it's going to be multiple big properties, okay. not just one. Um, <laughs> and second of all, yeah, I mean, even if we knew we weren't going to do 1031 exchanges, I would still do the cost segregation because the more money we have in our pocket now, the more we can invest, the more we can grow. And when you talk to us, we're very different risk tolerances. Um, Kenji's more risk averse because he went through 2008 and the downturn. And I like to be very leveraged and he doesn't like to be as leveraged. And so you know, for me, it's always been like, let's get as much money in our pockets today so we can grow our portfolio as big as possible. And then you know, we balance it but like Kenji mentioned, with the changes with being able to take bonus depreciation, it certainly encouraged us to turn over our properties a lot faster than we would have previously. It's funny because I see accountants every once in a while talk about the downsides to cost segregation studies and how they bite you on, on the back end. And for me, it's just always been about the time value of money. It's, hey, look, if I can save all this money today and I can reinvest that at an 8 9 10 12% rate then I win. It doesn't even matter if I have to pay it back. I'm going to win. Right? And it sounds like you guys took, to took a similar back. approach. You right. Know, you just right. Well, plan. You plan. Yep. That's it. Yep. You might not even have to. Yeah. You could just die and pass it on to your heirs. <laughs> not to get morbid, but, but that is an option. That is definitely an option. Very good. So shifting gears just a little bit, you know, one of the, there's, you know, a lot of reasons why people invest in real estate. One of them is obviously the tax benefits. And we, I think we did a great job on this podcast going through all of those. Um, but the other reason is financial freedom. And I know that was a primary motivator for you both as well. So 
I just have a few questions around that. At what point did you feel comfortable enough where you achieve financial freedom? How many units did you need to have? How much cash flow did you need to have? I think the answer is probably different for each of us. So I'll, I'll speak for myself. I think you know at one point I realized probably about two years ago that we had uh, about two hundred fifty thousand in tax free income coming in every year, and for me that was financial freedom. You know, I originally we had started out this goal and uh, this pathway. We had set goal. We had set a goal of replacing both of our clinical incomes, which was going to be about six hundred thousand dollars. Like that's what we wanted to make in cash flow a year. But when we got to two hundred fifty thousand, I was just like, we don't need any more than this. Like. You think you need more, but you don't at all. And I think it really shifted my mindset. And I became to think like, I'm just working because I want to in medicine. And whatever I do, I want to make sure I'm doing it for the right reasons now, which is, you know, it compels me or it fulfills me in some way. Otherwise, I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And actually, I, my reaction was very similar in the sense that once we hit that number, I was kind of like, well, what's the point? What, why do we keep you know, hustling and pushing. And I think one of the things that we realized at that time, uh, after going through a period of about three to six months, just kind of wondering, you know, kind of what, where do we go from here? What we realized was that ultimately we needed some type of purpose, some type of contribution, and we need to be growing ourselves. And so that's kind of what led us to helping others achieve uh, financial freedom. And so, yeah, it was a, you know, it, it's not as big of a number as, as people might think. And from the time you started to develop this portfolio, I know you previously owned two units, but from the time you started and the time you hit the 250, about how long did that take you to get there? It was about three years. Three years. And for people out there who are looking to achieve financial freedom uh, like yourselves, what, what kind of tips do you have for them to get to that, you know, to get to that financial freedom number? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think what really allowed us to do this is we had an end in mind. We had the outcome that we were aiming for. And because of that, we made very specific choices. So one thing we did was we decided never or not to own a primary residence. So when we read Rishet Portad, actually, we read it while we were in New Zealand. Right before we went to New Zealand, we were going around shopping for a primary residence. We had an agent. We were putting in offers. We were getting outbid in the Seattle area. We came back. We said... No more primary residents. Like every dollar is going to work for us because we are going to reach this goal. And our original goal was to do six hundred thousand in seven years. Like that was our goal. We had a number, and then I think it was just really having a direction. Yeah, and then that led us to cutting out things like Starbucks and buying a coffee machine and making real sacrifices like that. Uh, we house hacked. Uh, we house hacked I mean, we as well. Two physicians with like a nine month old baby, like living in a neighborhood where there was a lady who was like pushing copper pipes down the road that she stole, you know? Yeah. So it was yeah, definitely made some sacrifices along the way. And and I think as Leiti had mentioned, because we had a very clear goal in mind and we just followed through on that. I think another kind of big thing is uh, for somebody who's kind of listening right now is that you really need to assemble the right team of people and not just uh, tax professionals, but also you need a, a good team of real estate agents and uh, contractors, people who are going to help you along the journey uh, and help you grow. And so that's something else that I think people should really kind of focus on is building relationships with the people that are going to help you be successful. And I think that's what, one of the things that we were, uh, we were able to do. Uh, and then one other thing that I think has really helped us is this kind of idea of uh, forcing appreciation. Uh, I think a lot of people 
in especially in high cost of living markets, uh, play the appreciation game and they're playing market appreciation. They're, they're essentially gambling that the property is going to appreciate in value. And so one of the things that we did was we forced appreciation on a lot of our properties. And that's what's allowed us to take something that was that we purchased for 150000 and now selling for 400000 just a few years later. And so that's just an example of forcing that appreciation as opposed to just sitting back and waiting for it to happen. You talked about having that end goal in mind. It sounds like it was compelling enough to kind of make you go the opposite direction of traditional advice of you know just growing up in life and buying the primary residence and kind of going through those motions. What was your career history where you kind of sat back and you realized, wow, this is my goal that I want and I'm going to change my lifestyle to get it? Because I think that a lot of people think about that and they go, okay, well, the primary residence thing, you know, that makes sense, but I'm never going to do it because that's just not compelling enough for me. So how do you get to that goal that's just so compelling that you're willing to take those steps and make those sacrifices to, to get it done? Yeah, I think one of the things that you have to do, and this is something that we did as a couple, which I think uh, is really important if you are married or if you have a partner, is to really come up with that really strong reason or why before you make the goal. Because as Leti mentioned earlier, you need something that's going to pull you. I mean, if you're pushing something up a mountain, that's a lot harder than if something's pulling you up that mountain. And so I think you need to have that strong reason. And for us, you know, we did a, a lot of talking, a lot of thinking about what we wanted, uh, thinking about having a place for our family to gather, uh, having the time for our family, our, our children, thinking about uh, the alternative, right? You know, it's not just what you want, but also what you don't want. And so we thought about, well, do we really want to spend the next 30 years working week on, week off, week on, week off? Or do we want to have the freedom to be able to pick up and move to Hawaii for a year or travel for six months, right? And so that's really kind of the reasons that that pulled us. And then from there, it was like, okay, we know what we want. What do we need in order to be able to achieve that? Why? And then that's when the goals came in. Yeah, I think a lot of... Uh, when I think about a primary residence, there's an emotional pull, right? Well... This is the same thing. We developed a vision of our lives that had such emotional pull that we knew the primary residence wasn't aligned with that. And so this other emotional pull was so much stronger than a primary residence or a Tesla or whatever we could come up with. I mean, whenever we thought about buying something, it was like, do we want that or do we want a cash flowing duplex? You know? And when those decisions become so clear when you have the end in mind. So was the primary residence thing, was it more qualitative or quantitative? Because it, it, I'm hearing the emotional piece and me being a CPA, all I think about is the numbers, right? So, so talk to me about that. Like, is it the numbers that drove you or is it more of just the kind of what Kenji, what you were talking about with the, I want to be able to pick up and move to Hawaii at any point? Well, I think it was a combination because uh, quantitatively, we had money for a down payment and we were putting in offers for million dollar homes. We did have the money for a down payment. And so instead of using that money for down payment on an expensive primary residence, we decided to turn that money into actually multiple duplexes and a fourplex. And so it really kind of kickstarted us. And I mean, looking back, we're so happy we made that decision because those investments have, I mean, those properties have appreciated significantly. And the cash flow from those actually would probably pay for a mortgage on a primary residence right now. And so, and we don't have, still don't have a primary residence, but all we've done is just accumulated more and more properties and more and more cash flow to be able to pay for the lifestyle that we want to live. 
Yeah, I, I understand that poll you're talking about, right? Because I could buy a house if I wanted to, and I decide not to. And because uh, I always just look at it the same way you guys do, is like you know, I could take this money, go put a down payment on a house, or I can go and invest it and earn eight, ten, twelve percent of my money, and then take that money and go reinvest that. And I think it's just you have to have a really clear why, like you said. When you have that really clear why, everything else becomes easier. All that sacrifice that you're going to do becomes easier. And without that why, you just you're not going to have the discipline and the motivation to make that happen. So I completely see where you're coming from there. And I know now at this point, you had mentioned that you've achieved the financial freedom and now you're helping others do that. Can you just talk a little bit about how you help others achieve the same goal at this point? Yeah, it really started uh, with a, a blog. Uh, well, actually, I, I'll step back. It actually even started with just helping our friends uh, and our colleagues uh, get into investing. And so even that first year that we started, we actually had a, a couple, a physician couple who also was interested. We got them excited about it and they started investing when we did. And ever since then, we've been helping a lot of uh, people get into uh, investing. And and that eventually led to a, a blog even though that's completely out of character for us, I think, you know, we don't really like to put ourselves out there, but it was just one of these things. It's like, okay, you know, you, if you're going to be, you know, if you believe in something, if you you're passionate about something, if you, if you truly want to help people, uh, sometimes you just have to kind of put yourself out there and take a risk. And so that's what we did. We just said, okay, let's just do this. It was, uh, and even this, you know, you know, now we podcast and there's, that's like, I would have never thought that we would have, we would have done that, but you know, that mission really kind of drove us to do all this. Yeah. I mean, like you guys, we love real estate, right? You can't help but walk around and tell people about it all day long. And, you know, Kedji, I think was... I know he was embarrassed, but I would literally walk around and be like, yeah, we're becoming real estate barons. Like, that's what we're going to do. And, you know, you walk around and say that through a hospital, people start to pay attention. <laughs> and so eventually we had a number of our friends who were investing and we were giving them this advice that was like, you know, really scattered because we would talk to them for a couple hours and then we wouldn't see them for a month or two. And they were getting half the story. And because of that, they weren't getting this whole vision of the structure we had created actually with you know, layering forced depreciation and the tax benefits and then finding ways to maximize the net operating income of every one of our properties. I mean, Kenji is like in there looking at our duplexes and saying, okay, this part of this land belongs to this side of the duplex and they better take care of it. And he's putting it into the leases that they're going to take care of it and putting in pictures of what it looks like when, you know, when the person moved in and it better look like this when you move out. And that's reducing our landscaping costs. I mean, he's on top of it, right? And so they weren't hearing those kind of little details. And so they were missing them. And we really felt like we needed to give our friends and then now our students a really comprehensive view of how we were able to make this money. Are physicians like really well positioned for something like this? Do you feel like they're more they're they're better positioned than uh, potentially other professions out there? You know, that's a good question. I think they're well positioned in some respects. Uh, obviously, they they command the higher income, but I also think that they're at a disadvantage uh, in in a lot of ways. Uh, a lot of them come out with a lot of student debt, and they also get a later start. So I think those things. But also the other interesting thing about high income professionals that I that I see out there is that uh, I think that they're actually relatively underserved. I think most people, when they look at a high income professional, they just assume, oh, they've got it made. They don't need any help. But it's actually not true. I mean, they, they, I think high income professionals need tax strategies, for example, right? And it's often frustrating for us and for our readers that 
sometimes they say, well, I could have been a real estate professional all these years, but I just never, my accountant never told me, right? Or and maybe, and I don't know why that is. Maybe the accountant wasn't a real estate CPA like you guys, or maybe it was just because, you know, they figured, oh, they have high incomes, they're okay. I'm not sure what it was, but uh, I think I think they're at a disadvantage uh, in those ways. But when it comes to a physician uh, working and they have a spouse, let's say, who stayed home, that's I think that's a really nice setup for a real estate professional. If the person who stayed home is motivated to start a real estate business and they have that kind of mindset and they you know that they want to take that on uh, because it is a responsibility to become a real estate professional, and I think that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand that you have to really kind of take it seriously. But I do think in that way that they're nicely set up with the one spouse making a nice income so that they can get the loans and then the other spouse uh, investing that money and also creating a tax shelter. I'm glad you said that because you know we work with a lot of people and uh, the real estate professional status isn't something you could just obtain. And as we know, we discussed earlier today, there's hourly requirements. And a lot of times, there's these couples that that we might talk to or we might we might end up working with and you have to understand if you want to aim to become a real estate professional there is some sort of work involved you can't just check the box in your tax return and call it a day um, and i'm just i'm just glad you said that and uh, that you put that out there because a lot of people would just think it's just a free there's a free lunch there Right, for sure. And I, I think one of the things that i always say to people is because sometimes they go oh i don't really want to you know you know manage rentals or be fix a, real, a leaky toilet in the middle. Yeah, I don't want to fix those leaky toilets. Right, exactly. <laughs> you hear the stories, but it, it still comes back to the why. And I, and what I, one of the things that we we try to tell people is that, like, you know, could it be about creating a the best living environment for uh, for your tenants, right? And we invest in B or C class neighborhoods. You know, could you look at it as, you know, I want to create the best living environments for people who, you know, are you know, hardworking, working class. And because I know that there are a lot of landlords out there that don't care. And so, you know, could you look at it? Could there be a mission behind it, right? Oh, you know, there's also something else that we do called supported living, where we provide housing for people with intellectual disabilities. We have a small portion of our portfolio dedicated to that. And that's also very mission-driven. It's awesome to kind of think about, you know, be able to provide housing for people who used to be institutionalized. You know, that was their fate. And now we're providing housing for them in a community setting as opposed to being in a like a mental institution, uh, which is where they used to be. So, you know, that type of mission really helps me wake up, you know, every day and get excited about it. And that's how I think that's actually one of the things that I do in order to generate those hours for real estate professionals. I think about number one, I think about how could I improve the income of my property or decrease the expenses of my property. So increasing NOI, right? The second thing I'm always thinking about is what can I do to improve the living condition for my tenants, right? And if you ask yourself those questions, there's tons of ideas that come up, things that you can do to improve NOI, improve the living conditions. It's easy to rack up those hours. hours. Yeah, it's easy to get those hours. Right. That's great. It sounds like you've got a very uh, compassionate piece of this, and you've you've integrated that into your real estate investing strategy, which is awesome. And it just it just continues to pay dividends along the way, which is also great. One of the questions that I had as you guys were kind of telling the story, and why would a physician want to quit being a physician? Mm, that's a great one. 
Yeah. Being a physician is actually fairly difficult uh, right now. So you guys maybe or maybe haven't heard that a lot of physicians are being furloughed. They're taking pay cuts. Like even in my organization as a hospitalist, we're on the front line. We are the people who serve the people who get hospitalized. We've taken pay cuts. And even before that, there was a huge amount of physicians, a huge portion of the population that was burned out and just overworked have total loss of control over our working environments now and just really are need time off and need the flexibility to be able to live lives on work in their terms, but also live their lives on their terms. And so there's a huge underserved population of physicians who are looking for other sources of income so that they can get control back of their lives. Yeah. There's some that, uh, you know, I think there's a, there's a fair number that, you know, really love what they do and uh, they're, never planning to cut back. Uh, and I think in those situations, it's really nice if you, especially if you have a spouse or something that wants to be that real estate professional. Um, but I agree. Um, it's, it's actually scary if you're, if you really kind of understand what's happening in the physician world, it's actually really scary to think about how many people are dissatisfied, how many people are burnt out. You, you hear about suicides in the news. I mean, that's, that's a real thing. I mean, that happened in our group as two well. Two people. Two people in our group. Uh, so it, it's a real thing. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, that's also part of our mission is kind of to try to help our colleagues, our physician colleagues, so they, they can kind of control their fate, um, so that they can also live life on their own terms and work on their own terms as well. You know, maybe uh, this could just be my ignorance, but I was in a mastermind group uh, and a couple of years ago, there was a a healthcare provider in the group and uh, it was just all about kind of like how you run businesses and things like that. But that's where I learned that hospitals are privatized, which again, like I could just be my ignorance, but it just kind of all started making sense. It's like, oh my God, like you think like physicians, you know, you, you've worked so hard and now you're at the top, but at the end of the day, there's still somebody in charge of maximizing profits in the hospital, you know, and it's, that was like mind blowing to me. And I'm sure there's some people listening to this right now, rolling their eyes, <laughs> but, but anyway, no, no, it's true. No, I mean, uh, I mean, one of the you know, signatures of burnout is loss of control. And so mm. more and more physicians are, if you look at kind of the trends of employment, more and more physicians are employed as opposed to practicing independently. I mean, practicing independently was like our parents' generation. Uh, they were out there working on their own, doing their own thing. Uh, it's only been more recently that more and more physicians are being employed, are their practices are being bought out by hospitals, hospital systems, uh, and that loss of control. And I mean, that's really kind of one of that one of the, I think one of the big drivers of burnout. Yeah, I mean, we get emails all the time from people, and this is what drives us to do the blog. Honestly, is is these people that can finally see the light in the end of the tunnel that they know they're going to be able to spend time with their families in the future. It's I mean, it's really amazing. Sorry, I'm going to start crying on the podcast. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. You're very committed and we love it. How many people do you have in the group today? So right now, our Facebook group uh, has uh, almost... Well, actually, just over 3,800 uh, wow. physicians in it. And uh, our wait list for our course has 1,600 people on it. Yeah, just <laughs> to give you a sense. And our course starts in a couple of days. Yeah, just to give you a sense of just the... And that's all. I think a lot of it is actually COVID-related people realizing that their incomes are not as secure as they thought they were, and also that they realize that they need to have an alternative income stream. Wow, very nice. So so physician finds semi-retired MD, uh, they sign up for your course. What do they get by going through your course? 
Yeah, well, first of all, I did want to say that there are a ton of free resources out there for people who are wanting to get started. So, you know, check out our blog and just read some of those articles. A lot of the information is all right there. Uh, in terms of the course, I think there's the, I'll kind of split it up into kind of the knowledge and then there's community. And so in terms of the knowledge, you know, our goal is to take somebody who has little or no knowledge about real estate and get them to a point where, you know, they feel really confident uh, they feel competent uh, when it comes to putting in offers and buying that first rental property. And then in terms of community, which I think is really, really powerful, one of the things that we do is we create this community where people can get together. One of the first things that we do is we actually talk about a lot of these whys and goals that we just talked about, right? You need to have that really strong reason to kind of pull you along. Also, real estate investing, as you guys probably know, is there's a lot of curveballs, right? A lot of things happen, a lot of frustrating things that happen. Uh, you know, where whether your, your your fence is getting tagged or you know uh, a post that's holding up uh, your carport gets knocked down, right? Whatever it is, lots of things happen, and it can be really frustrating when you get that call. So you need that kind of really strong why. So we spend a lot of time on those types of things because we know that as a real estate investor, you're going to encounter a lot of these challenges. And so we want to make sure that people just don't get into this and, and quit, right? That's, that's what we, we want to, we want to make sure that they kind of fight through that and, and get through that. So that's, that's kind of like the, how we started. And then, and the community is really cool where this is kind of where we can talk about these things. People kind of like pour their hearts out, talk about things that have held them back uh, in the past. Why haven't they gotten into real estate investing until now? What are their fears about investing, right? And we, you know, we conquer those. And then we get into the content of, you know, the kind of the nuts and bolts of like how to invest. And again, the community is great there because people will post their deals, people will ask questions, and you get like 15, 20 responses. Uh, and so I think that's one of the, you know, it's kind of the the content and then the community, I think. Is what yeah, I think there are a couple of things that have really made our course very successful is first of all, people are able to see that they're making progress every step of the way. So, you know, we're introducing, they actually have homework and then we're introducing them to the agents. We're introducing to the team members they need. And so each and every week they're seeing that they're making that sort of progress and moving towards where they want to be. And then I think it's, yeah, community and people who understand them. And those are really like driving beyond the, just the information of what to do. You know, the forced appreciation, the buying multifamily, the, you know, value add, all that stuff. It really seems that you guys have a really thought out uh, program to lead someone from the beginning to maybe getting to their first deal. You have the community to support them. And all of that is fantastic. And I could just hear it. It's great. If I was a physician, I'd be in. But what is the one thing or maybe one of the few things that makes physicians fail at getting to that first property or getting to that point where they're from a physician to a real estate investor? I think it's uh, largely uh, fears and limiting beliefs. So in terms of fears, a lot of them will have some past history. They'll have people in their ear telling them that, you know, you're a doctor, you shouldn't be doing real estate, right? So people putting doubts in their head. Also, in terms of limiting beliefs, a lot of them just don't believe in themselves. They don't believe that they can learn something completely new. And and I, we always tell them, hey... Real estate at the end of the day is much easier than getting a medical degree and going through residency. So yeah, I, I think it's just the fears and limiting beliefs, I think, are probably the biggest obstacles for people. I don't think it's for, unique, though. I mean, not, I think that 80% of anything is psychology, right? I mean, it, it's what everyone suffers for, from is the same things that the physicians are dealing with when trying to totally start something new that's an unknown. Well, same with us, right? I mean, we still have these 
limiting beliefs and we still encounter those obstacles or we put those obstacles in our own way. And even recently, for me, I had a limiting belief that uh, I didn't have enough time, right? And because we were juggling all these different things. And we also wanted to preserve our personal time, right? You know, if I'm going to be living a semi-retired life, right, I, I have to be able to do all these things and also have time for family and for travel, whatever it is. And so time was always kind of a limiting belief. And one of the things that we did this year was we went out and did something that we also didn't think we could do well, which was go hire and build a successful team. And so that's something that we've been working on this year. And another limiting belief I had recently until recently was that I didn't think I could buy large apartment buildings. And so, you know, it was just simply, you know, it just seemed too big. Uh, it just seemed kind of scary. I didn't know the right people. Uh, it seemed like large sums of money. And again, those are just limitations that you're putting on yourselves. And there's no reason. I mean, now I look at myself and I laugh because I actually think it's really funny that I, I had those limiting beliefs because I don't have those anymore. I've completely, you know, conquered them and I'm, I'm over it. I'm over it. And so... <laughs> it was a battle uh, to try to get him over that though. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. She helped me. It's very true. I, I was I was struggling there for a while. And so, yeah. So, so just want to make sure that everybody understands out there listening to this, that, you know, even, even where we are, and it's very common, it's, it really happens to all of us, is that just you got to be really aware of the obstacles that you put in your way. And the obstacles are typically driven by some type of fear or some type of limiting belief. Uh, just going to plug right here. So Tom and I just recently launched another podcast called The Staying Power Podcast. We highly recommend if you're listening, go check it out. It kind of talks about these things because that's been my experience as a business owner is that you get these, you get these ups and downs. You're also like on an island by yourself and nobody can really relate to you. But I always come across these limiting beliefs too. And I remember, I think it was like early 2019 or something. I have a business coach who's incredible. And he's like, his business is 20x larger than ours. So he's way ahead of us, which is something I very much believe in doing. If you're listening and you need to grow, you get somebody that's way ahead of you. But I remember well, there was one call where I was just like, I don't know, man. I just feel like people are going to figure out that I'm a fraud at some point. He's like, <laughs> curse words are flying. He's like, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? You've grown this big business. You know all this tax code knowledge. Like You provide a lot of value to clients. You got to get that out of your system. And then it like corrected me very quickly. I was like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I, I'm, I'm good. Got a lot to learn, but I'm good. And we, we do a good job for our clients. So it happens to everybody. It happens to everybody. It happens to the biggest players. You know, you guys are like sitting here talking about how physicians, they don't feel like they can do this thing. And I'm sitting here going, but they've gone through all this incredible schooling. They've done the hardest coursework. Like, how do they not? But it's the same thing. It's just everybody, if it's a little outside your wheelhouse, you get a little nervous and there's the doubt that starts ringing in your head. Can you actually do this? Are you doing it right? And is somebody going to find out that I have no idea what I'm doing 10 years down the road, even though I'm the best in the, in the field? It's just like, it's like that stuff happens all the time. So yeah, so we started the Staying Power podcast to kind of explore that type of stuff with other business owners and, and figure out like, what do you do to get over that? And a lot of business owners get coaches. It sounds like your community is providing that for physicians. That's right. Yeah, for sure. The community is a big part of that is accountability. And also, uh, you know, we, I actually do call people out very frequently in there. I only feel like I'm able to do that just because we've built that kind of trust within the community. I don't do that in the very beginning, but part of building that trust is starting out with some of that mindset stuff and having people share and be vulnerable. And that's what allows me at, towards the like week four, or week five of the course to kind of kind of call them out on, hey, 
you know, this is just a limiting belief of yours. And so that accountability is key. And so, and similarly, uh, Leite and I have multiple kind of groups that uh, accountability partners that we talk to on a regular basis, kind of like mastermind type things. And, uh, and that's also been great because we call each other out all the time. It's right. You said they set a new standard for us, you know, they show us what is possible and then set that standard, which is what you're saying your coach does. Right. And you will step up to that standard if it's set there and you can see it's possible. You know, absolutely. No, I think something that you guys really hit a chord here as you're talking about that was like, sometimes you just need to get out of your own head, right? You have the same thought process. It keeps looping around over your head. You need somebody, you need that community, you need that coach to just pull you out of your own head and say, hold on a second. Why don't you look at it this way? Because without that, you could just keep running in circles forever. So I felt like that was, that's an amazing tip right there. Sometimes you just need that community. Um, and I just want to ask a quick question going back to the real estate we have a lot of people listen to this podcast, invest in multifamily. They're always looking to increase their NOI, always looking for fresh ideas. So I want to see if you had any unique ideas or maybe what your top ideas were to, or top uh, strategies to increase NOI are. Yeah. So one of the things uh, that we always say is that, you know, I think cash flowing rentals is kind of like a, a foundation, right? And, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you only have to rent to regular tenants. So I think uh, exploring some of these alternative strategies like uh, supported living we talked about, there's also things like respite housing. Uh, there's also, if you want to kind of get into a little bit more operations, you know, there's things like adult family homes where you can get 6,000 per resident, right? In, in monthly rent. Uh, and you can house six people in a house, let's say. Uh, there's also, you know, something may not be popular, but it's a niche definitely is sex offender housing, right? Could be another one, right? So there's a lot of these kind of niches that you can pursue. Airbnb is also another one, right? And so one of the things that we always teach is kind of like, you know, you may not necessarily want a whole portfolio of Airbnbs, let's say, just because of you know what happened with COVID right now. Uh, for us, we've always thought about it as Airbnbs are kind of a nice supplement. And if you think about it from a portfolio level, if you increase the NOI of a, of, of a certain portion of your portfolio, you can still have that core of multifamily. And then you can have a number of different strategies like supported living, which is actually completely recession-proof. Uh, you can have some of these additional things that cash flow a lot more. Our cash on cash return on that supported living property is 40%. Uh, as an example, we have another one that's about 25%. Uh, and the reason is that you're able to eliminate a lot of expenses like property management. You don't have to pay utilities. You have zero vacancy, as an example. I think that's one of, one of the things. I think another kind of way to really think about it and become really creative, I don't have any very specific examples right now, but it, it is asking yourself that question of how can I increase the income and decrease the expenses? It's looking at your books, looking at the accounting, right? And looking at every line item and going, okay, how can I increase this number if it's on the revenue side? How can I decrease this number if it's on the expense side? And you know, the ideas just start flowing. And, and maybe you don't do it yourself, right? You do it with a community of people. You do it in you guys' uh, Slack community, right? Whatever it is, you guys have, you know, just, just be thinking about it and problem solve. It's what you got to do. And you got to ask the right questions too, right? You got to ask yourself the right questions. You can't just you know, just ask the same old questions and expect a different answer. So you got to ask really good questions when it comes to each of those line items. Yeah, I think I want to add two more things that we've done that I think really have increased the value of our properties. Number one is we've built back a lot of utilities. It wasn't something that was being done in our market before, but we really got aggressive about it. And we've been able to successfully build back the utilities on almost all of our properties. And number two, uh, detached garages. 
we oftentimes will buy multifamily with a detached garage. And if it has alley access, we'll rent it to a third party. We'll pay a lot more. And we end up running electricity to that garage, putting a roller door, closing up all the windows. And then that becomes either like a storage shed for them, for their cars or their tools or whatever. They pay the electricity bill. They're responsible for the landscaping right around that garage. And, you know, we have, for example, a duplex that just, you know, is a, what, 1,100 per side, but then we're renting the garage for 250 in the back to a totally different person. And that increases the value of the property significantly. No, that's good to know. I think that's that's interesting because there's a lot of opportunities for ancillary income, like the garages, like sometimes adding new units or turning old storage sheds into units and properties. I've seen people do a lot of interesting things and there's a lot of ways to be creative. I know some people do laundry, coin laundry in, in, in their apartments. Um, so there's a lot of exciting ways to increase NOI. One more question for you on the real estate side of things. And this might not be part of your mission and I might already know the answer to this, but have you ever considered syndicating deals and raising capital? Because I'm, I'm sure there's some people out there who would be interested in working with somebody like you who's went through the fire. Maybe they're not ready to go through that fire and, and create their own portfolio, but they have maybe some capital and they want to invest in real estate, but they just don't want to be responsible for it. Sure. Yeah. So it is something that uh, that I, I am getting into. I've a, I've actually syndicated a deal and uh, raised money and also participating in the uh, operations of that property. And so uh, something we are doing. It's not a focus right now. Uh, one of the reasons why we got into it originally was to get over my limiting belief about bigger properties. And so I thought a good way to kind of get into that space and get to know how to operate those bigger properties is to uh, learn more about syndications, participate in a syndication. uh, And that way I would really kind of get exposed to that whole area. I think what I found is that it's actually uh, very similar to managing a small property, but just at a bigger scale. But a lot of the, uh, you know, the things that the vendors we use, the, you know, kind of the analysis, it's all, all very similar. And so clearly my fear was unfounded. That's no, good to know. That's good to know. So if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, learn more about you, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah. So I think the uh, probably the best way is just to uh, go to our blog, uh, semiretiredmd.com. And we do want to point out that it's you know really not just for physicians, but really any high income professional. Uh, we define high income professional as that threshold of $150,000 or more, just because that's kind of the, the point at which you, know, you can no longer take that $25,000 deduction, I guess that gets phased out at 150. So, uh, so that's the reason why we kind of choose that as our definition of high income professional, uh, because really this is a strategy that's not just, you know, for physicians, but really, uh, really anybody. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. We definitely appreciate it. I think you added a tremendous amount of value here from, we talked about taxes, we talked about mindset, we talked about limiting beliefs, and uh, we talked about real estate. So what else is there to love? So thanks again for coming on. We're looking forward to uh, putting this out there. Thank you both for having us on. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. Have you heard of the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit coming up on June 11th through the 13th? It's a three-day information-packed virtual event for multifamily investors with over 1,000 attendees and over 50 speakers. You will hear from experts on finding deals, raising capital, underwriting strategies, selecting markets, and so much more. 
I have also been invited back to present on tax strategies for multifamily investors. To grab your tickets, head on over to www.apartmentevent.com and use promo code THOMAS to get $100 off. Whether you're a seasoned vet or just getting started, this is an event that you won't want to miss. Again, join me at the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit by visiting www.apartmentevent.com today and use promo code THOMAS for $100 off your tickets. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.